Welcome to The Patient Physician, a space for doctors to explore their physical, mental, and financial wellness. Your peers and industry leaders will destigmatize institutional perceptions while redefining success, money, and personal care. Get ready to pull back the curtain, because here, you are both patient and physician. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Patient Physician. I'm your host, Paul Smith. And I am the co-host, Chris Fulbright, and we are super excited to be meeting with Dr. Dizik today. Uh, Dr. Dizik, Paul and I had the pleasure of visiting with you just a couple weeks ago, and I got to tell you, we have been excited to have an opportunity to visit with you again. And so thank you so much. We know you have a lot going on, and, and we're excited to uh, visit with you a little bit more today. It's great. Nice seeing the both of you. I'm going to just give a little bit of background, but we'll also attach the bio um, to this because it's quite extensive. Um, Dr. Dietzik is a board certified vascular surgeon with more than 25 years of experience and has vast knowledge of vascular disorders, uh, a special interest in uh, cardioid keratid. This is why I don't do what you do, right? <laughs> Peripheral uh, aneurysmal diseases of the thoracic and abdominal aorta. You know, I debated before we even started this, I'm just going to delete that out. I thought, no, I'll, I'll struggle. <laughs> so <laughs> fail out year one medical school. Yeah. Um, he's the, <laughs> uh, he's proud of the fact that the majority of his patients are managed non-operatively reserving surgery for only those where there is no better alternative. Uh, he's a fellow of the American college of surgeons, a distinguished fellow of the society of vascular surgery and has held many leadership positions in uh, vascular organizations. He has numerous publications in peer-reviewed journals, and he's the current network chief of vascular surgery for Eastern region of Nuvance Health. He believes that trust and honesty is vital in the patient-physician relationship and allows him to provide personalized, excellent care and treat patients like a member of their family, which we'll see. I, it, we'll try to survey some of your family and see if that's a good thing or bad thing later. <laughs> but in his free time, he also enjoys numerous sports reading, architecture, and then I may bring up the other thing that you talked to us about later. But he chose vascular surgery because it's a dynamic field of medicine that is technically challenging and can provide the ultimate rewards of saving a patient's life and limbs. So welcome. You and I have really only had a little bit of exchange back and forth when we met uh, doing the DeBakey Sisterhood and Surgery webcast a couple of times. And those discussions were really more centric around financial decision-making and do's and don'ts and things like that. But you are always able to really share great thoughts and, and wisdom because of your experience. So I, I just wanted to dig in and, and go a little bit more personal and, and share uh, some of the other experiences that you might have had over 25 years. I'm sure you've seen a lot, been through a lot. And if we can start there, that'd be great. Take us through some of the high points. Some of the high points of, of my career. I think that you know, as I reflect, uh, you know, it's been a privilege to be uh, a physician and a vascular surgeon. Uh, I remember my first few months uh, coming to work and, and just like not believing that somebody was actually going to pay for me to play in the sandbox. It was, it was like, wow, it doesn't get better than this. But then as time goes on and you, you deal with hospitals and administrators, you realize, well, maybe it could get better than this. But <laughs> still, I still love the field of vascular surgery. And, uh, 
and the the science of it and the the surgery and the technical portions of it. You know, I was at Northwell, North Shore Hospital before it was even Northwell for 10 years prior to coming to uh, Danbury Hospital, as it was known then, uh, to start a vascular program. And uh, it's been a journey. Uh, now we're 23 years in. It's a seven hospital system. You know, we've grown a vascular lab that uh, is uh, I'm very proud of. Uh, when I came here, we did 1,500 studies. Now we do 15,000. We have uh, four vascular surgeons on my in my service. Uh, we do lots of uh, advanced procedures. We have hybrid rooms. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's a uh, combined operatory with an imaging unit that's fixed in place in the operating room so that we can do minimally invasive, what they call endovascular procedures. And about 80% of our operations at this point in time are actually endovascular or these minimally invasive procedures. And that's remarkable considering that when I started, uh, I couldn't tell you what the word endovascular was because it hadn't been invented yet. So there have been some really amazing changes over the course of the last 25 to 30 years in vascular surgery. And so it's, it's been great to be a part of that. Uh, you know, then there's the academic part of my career, which I thoroughly enjoy. And that's, you know, doing research and presenting our research, you know, around the country and sometimes the world. And so that, that's also a lot of fun and enjoyable. And you get to meet lots of different people and hear lots of different things and learn about other systems of medicine other than your own. So well, and you were one of the first physicians in the United States to use radio frequency too for for treatment of uh, chronic venous insufficiency, and and uh, amongst other things that you were talking about, just sort of seeing how how medicine is has evolved. And so, tell us how that was to be kind of on the front end of something like that. I know you you participate in in that on that side of it with the academic portion, but also part of trials. And so, is there something down the road that uh, you're excited about that? you know, you're researching, you're studying now, and maybe even starting to teach. Yeah. So, well, what you're referring to is the endovenous ablations, which essentially when I was a resident and in the first 10 years of my practice, the way we treated varicose veins, uh, which we didn't really know a whole lot about other than that it meant that the vein that they were attached to, which is the great saphenous vein, which is the main superficial vein in your leg, so the vein that patients have taken out all the time to do bypass in their hearts or bypass in their legs. And in those days, if you had bad varicose veins, you would strip out that great saphenous vein. You would make a little incision at the groin and a little incision at the ankle, and you'd put this long piece of plastic tubing through the vein and tie it at the other end and then rip it out. And it's just as brutal as it sounds. And this was done with general anesthetic. And the patients would often spend days in the hospital. And then as we progressed, we would even do it as an outpatient. But the patients had a ton of pain. Uh, and it was really, uh, you know, people feared having that surgery, which is why we, you know, there weren't a ton of them done. Uh, and then came endovenous ablation, where... We now, under ultrasound, would identify the vein at the ankle or the knee and then insert 
a little tube, a catheter, that heats up with radio frequency. And as you remove that from the vein, and I'm making it very simplistic, but as you remove it from the vein, it closes the vein. And the whole procedure takes about 20 minutes. And the patient walks in and walks out. And then other alternatives to radio frequency are laser. And now uh, there are other means to close the veins with chemicals and glue and foam. And so it, it's really been a remarkable change. And now patients everywhere have heard about these procedures. And, you know, they no longer fear coming in to have this address because it's really a minimal procedure. You know what the the changes that you described there just it seems so outstanding. We just had a, a close family member who had I, I don't know it was like six bypass. It was already, and that's exactly what happened, right? It was the, they removed the vein in the leg, and and the steps and and the sequence of events of, of healing there. His doctor even said, "Look, if this had happened several years ago, this process would have been uh, so much more painful." One, but two, that the healing process uh, was so much longer. You know, one of the things that, that Paul and I have done through the patient physician is, is had the opportunity to visit with physicians around the country. And, and one of the questions that continues to bubble up is how AI is affecting both training, but also medicine in your specialty. Where do you kind of see AI coming in uh, from either new procedures or, or even within patient care? I see uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger becoming a vascular surgeon uh, <laughs> and taking over the world. Uh, but in, in we knew there was going to be a yeah, sequel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And AI is both a remarkable tool that will be to the advantage of many patients in the medical arena. You know, the first, I guess, specialty that's really going to be affected in a very big way is radiology because they've already shown now that, uh, AI with a period of training can identify diagnostically just about anything and more than a radiologist. So that's that's unbelievable. Uh, so you can imagine how this is going to change things for everybody and the consideration of thousands and potentially millions of facts regarded to any patient or disease entity to help you make a decision about what the right thing is to do. Now, we all, you know, we talk about the art and science of medicine, and there's no question that at least now, AI doesn't have the art part down, but it does have the science part, and, you know, that is going to be a huge advantage. Alternatively, and at the same time, I don't know if you folks saw the recent 60 Minutes, where they interviewed the person who invented AI um, from England. He won a Nobel Prize for it. And he said we should be, we should stop right now and reassess. So I think it's going to be, on the one hand, we're going to see it have great advantage in medicine, but who knows if this is going to be allowed to progress unchecked? And I would not be surprised uh, if we see at some point in the not too distant future that they kind of put a hold on this for a while until they can figure out really how to control all aspects of it. It would be great if you could just teach it medicine, 
but it don't work that way. And so you, you, I didn't catch that episode, but you're, you're seeing that he said something about stopping. Are you talking about in terms of just applications across the board or how it pertains to medicine? I no, not medicine. In fact, that's one of the things you mentioned. That's, that's where some of the great advantages of AI are going to be in medicine and in teaching. But, you know, beyond that, uh, there is the fear that it can get out of control and we really don't understand it fully. And one of the things I found remarkable was that I think it was Scott Pelley asked him, well, do you really think the computer can think? And he said, yes. Wow. He said, we have ways of testing it. We would ask it a question and based upon just facts, the answers they get are not what they expected. It is indicating that there actually is some sort of thought process, not self-awareness, but a thought process. And he went on to say that, you know, right now, your typical AI has one trillion connections that it's dealing with to make all these assessments. The human brain has a hundred trillion. The rapidity with which this is going to develop is going to be mind-blowing, I think, and I think everyone thinks that. At once, you know, once AI gets to a certain point, it can write its own code. And so it gets into a very philosophical conversation about, I mean, I personally believe in God. On the other hand, you know, part of believing in a superior entity is that humans are different and we have the ability to be self-aware and think. But is it really because we're imbued with a soul? Or is it because we have a certain number of neuronal connections that at some point allows you to become self-aware and, and say, I am? So if that happens with a computer, will they also become self-aware? And at that point, it would be kind of the cat out of the bag because can't control that. So it's a little scary. Yeah, Just something to think about. Yeah, your your thought process then obviously ties back to Terminator and then Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and what you're describing there uh, can be very scary, right? If we we think through the processes and knowledge based and uh, in the different industries, there's still the personal connection, right? When we go in to see a doctor, when we visit with a surgeon, that and I think that the, yes, there's skills and 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 there's reviews and technical part that could come from the computer. Do you feel that a patient's expectations, or I guess it may be more difficult from generationally, you know, thinking back, we didn't come with cell phones, our children grew up with them. There's that a different comfort level there. But within the the doctor-patient relationship, the the AI could do certain portions of it, but the doctor relationship with the patient, do you feel that would be even more important to have people move forward? Or do, do you see sometime in the future where in certain specialties, the doctor could actually be removed out of that sequence, and it's all AI-driven. I, I do think there will be portions of medicine that will be replaced. Interesting. Uh, I do, because I think that the, especially in those fields where there's little patient interaction to begin with, and if it's just, you know, the ability to interpret certain things, I think like radiology or 
something along those lines. It is scary to think about, but it is possible that there are certain areas of medicine that could be replaced. I don't think any area of medicine is going to go untouched. You would hope, I know I would want to see a human uh, interact with me. And uh, again, the art of medicine, uh, it's more than just having the facts. It's understanding the particular patient and what their needs are in deciding, you know, what kind of therapy you're going to recommend. So I may be able to tell you that the best operation for you to to keep your aneurysm uh, from ex- from rupturing is this, this, and this. But I have to understand you and where you are overall and your medical circumstance, your social circumstance, your psychological circumstance to understand if that would really be the the treatment or management for you as a person. And I think we're a ways off from that as far as AI is concerned. I just want to know how Hollywood knew so far beyond. (laughs) We we knew this was coming. It it is writing our our lives, right? It's quite remarkable. Uh, to think that, uh, you know, 30 years ago, somebody really anticipated the potential problem. Well, the the, uh, speed at which it'll continue to develop, it just accelerates even further, right? It's one to two, two to four, and, and so on and so forth. And it just is is a lot more rapid in terms of the uh the growth but i'm gonna shift back a little bit and go to training um where you know one of the things that we talked about is is back where you know there was heavy training schedules in fact we had a conversation um just recently with another physician that you know had also gone through where it was very rigorous and and had noted that it was a very uh big deal when they shifted to having limited hours. And so if you can kind of talk to that and, and your experience of going through that, I know that, that seeing where you had to go through, is, is it been a good thing to limit those hours from what you've seen? Or do you think that, especially with the development of AI, I know we're kind of layering in different thoughts here, but you know, how does that really evolve the training programs? If, if we have something that's that's learning a lot faster than than we can anyway. Well, that's a very interesting question. You know, I, I think that with regards to the training, there's no question that the there has been a revolution, not only in the therapies we administer, but in the training uh, that we now receive. I mean, when I was a resident, uh, the average surgical work week was somewhere around. I don't know, 110 hours a week, which don't leave a lot of time for sleeping or doing anything else. And so it was brutal. And at the time, if you would have asked me that, I would have said, this is horrible. This is crazy. And you don't need to do it. Why do we have to do this? Alternatively, I think that it's a different breed of surgeon, I'll only comment on surgeons for now. You know, sometimes I'll have to do a late case and the staff or nurses will say to me, I don't understand. How could you, how could you be awake the next day working? You look like you didn't stay up. 
And it comes from the training you receive. You just get used to it. But it's good and it's bad. I think in the five years of training, uh, if you compare that to training today, it's probably you're getting seven years of training in five years. And so when this has become somewhat of an issue, because a lot of the residents finishing uh, their training today need additional training to get to where we were, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago. That said, currently, the training is more sensitive to a work-life balance. I think, as we all know, uh, the younger people today are more concerned with work-life balance. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, maybe they have it right. I will tell you that despite the fact that they spend less hours doing work at their residency, I don't think there's a week that goes by that I am not impressed with the knowledge and uh, ability to produce by our younger people. I mean, you know, I remember when our parents would say, oh, this young people, they're so smart today. And I would say, what are they talking about? They're not really any different than when you were young. But I'm telling you, when I see these, I'll call them kids now, because compared to me, they are. But when I see them presenting and some of the research they're doing and the quality of their presentations and how they write, I'm fascinated by that because I think even my own kids, I'm like, I cannot believe they are as good as they are. So there are pluses and there are minuses. I think we still turn out great doctors. The training's a little different. The attitude's different. But I think we turn out some great doctors. Uh, what it will mean in the future as far as healthcare in the United States, clearly it's evolving. Uh, venture capital is involved in managing practices. Hospitals are involved. Even insurance companies are involved. The latest figure I heard is that United Healthcare, an insurance provider, now owns providers. 70,000 physicians are employed by United Healthcare. I don't know. To me, that's a scary thought. Seems almost like a conflict of interest at some level. I think it's clearly evolving. And do, do I think patients can expect the same kind of care they once received from their doctor who they love and they trust? And probably not. Probably not. I, I don't think it's possible if you really want to produce a different kind of work-life balance to maintain the kind of uh, relationship we had with our patients for most of my career. Do you think that's a U.S.-based uh, that you're describing there? Or do you see that? I mean, I know that you and Paul uh, met speaking on a, on a platform and obviously reading through your, your bio and getting to know you, people reach out to you on a regular basis. What you described there from a training aspect, from a from a patient interaction, uh, the the change in training intensity, maybe the hours, do you, is that a U.S.-based change or do you see that happening internationally as well? Well, I, it's definitely happened internationally. And I think actually Europe is probably further ahead on this than we are. Okay. I think um, uh, their hours were limited uh, much in advance of ours. Uh, also, you know, a socialized system, has different nuances to it than a capitalistic sure. 
uh, one does. And, uh, you know, just by virtue of the fact that, uh, you know, our insurance companies are traded on a stock market. So their fiduciary responsibility is to answer to shareholders, not to patients, even though they're providing a necessary service. So I think there are major differences between the healthcare systems. And I do think that affects training and the day-to-day of, of healthcare. I think we're evolving more towards that system. And who knows what the end point's going to be? Because right now we're in this crazy arena of venture capital getting involved in buying practices and running healthcare practices in companies that are employing doctors with a specific motivation to produce not quality, but quantity or profit. And so how is that? I mean, I don't think doctors are selling their souls, but I do think it changes the dynamic. And, you know, where is that going to end up? Because, you know, just like mergers and acquisitions, you know, all you have to do is go see the movie, what was it, Wall Street in the 1990s? Companies being bought, combined, and sold in parts. Well, you can imagine that as venture capital gets involved in medicine, uh, the motivation is to drive all the profit that they possibly can. And it's going to be at some point at the expense of healthcare or more likely the persons that work in healthcare. And, you know, I don't think most physicians who are younger physicians are going to enjoy that circumstance. Well, it certainly displays the, um, the motives, right? You, you didn't get into to medicine for the reasons that um, venture capital does, right? So you're entering into it for com- two completely different reasons. And we're already seeing where many, even in academia, uh, where a lot of the models have moved to more of what looks like a private practice, where it's, you know, there's some baseline, and, and uh, but there's a lot of productivity and, and RVU-based type of income models, and, and it's starting to look more and more like that. And, you know, even at, in academics, they still have to have a line of profitability. And so um, some of that that edge of where, you know, people had selected academics for that, that work-life balance you were talking about is has certainly uh, narrowed, I think, because of the demand. And and I've talked to several people who over time said, you know, I, I wanted to be in academics because I, I liked the ability to teach and, and be interactive and be on the front end of things. But what's happened now is, is I have to also satisfy this productivity requirement. And so it, it's this direct pull where I can't do both equally as good. I, I have to go in one direction or another. And so this, this pure desire to teach and, and help and educate and, is getting uh, contradicted by the demand to actually produce. So, you know, where does that go? Does it continue to evolve even more uh, like private practice? And what does that do, you know, when you're, you're already asking so much uh, of, of the teachers? Uh, you know, I want to go back real quick, if we can, to to that work-life balance, because this was something that, that I think is is continuing to be a, a, a huge deal. Um, you had shared an idea about this, 
and, and what you think should happen because you'd, you know, you had a history of, of going through your training and having to make some decisions that were not easy because of the demand of your schedule. And so not having the proper amount of time allowed to, to do the things that you need to do to take care of yourself. It's really, again, kind of the, the key focus here of the, the patient physician here and, and bringing these, these decisions, these not easy, right. Um, and the things that you have to deal with. Um, but you had an idea that I thought was pretty interesting. I, I don't know if you'd be willing to share that and, and, uh, kind of expand on, on how that might make things even better. You'll have to remind me as to specifically what you are referring to, Paul. Oh, well, good. If you don't remember that, I'm just going to take it, <laughs> sell it, and then I will mail you. He's not sure which idea you're talking about. <laughs> oh, so many good ideas. He wasn't sure which one, Paul. You got an- I, I have so many good ideas. It's- <laughs> well, then you're not going to mind if I just borrow this one and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Uh, no, it was it was uh, health day, um, specifically for physicians, not you know, for you know, oh, just health day, population, yeah. just health day. Yeah. You know, we really, and I know I'm a victim of this boy is that, um, you just put off taking care of yourself because you're so wrapped up in your everyday work of taking care of other patients and doing all the things you have to do to be successful in your own field, whether it be productivity, writing papers, making presentations, and, and just like it's not to say that this doesn't happen in every field of endeavor, the difference is we're out there telling patients what they should be doing to keep healthy, and then we don't do it on, on many levels. Do as I say, not as I do, right? Right, right. And listen, I've been a, a victim of that. In fact, uh, now the way I make certain that I take care of certain aspects of my health is I just mention to any one of my daughters that I need something done that I haven't done. Like there's something going on right now or I need a test done. And I can tell you, my daughter is, she is bothering me every day. (laughs) Dad, have you made your appointment yet? So that's how I get things done now. But I think that a better way to do it would maybe be to have at least uh, once a month, once every quarter or twice a year, something called Health Day, where physicians, it's just understood that on that day, you do the things that maybe you need to do to take care of yourself medically, not to go to the town fair or even though you could say that's a mental day, uh, but really to kind of put it aside to that's a day that you take care of yourself. Now, can't be the same for everybody the same day because then you'll have no one to go to. Everyone will be out on the same day. But there's got to be a way we can emphasize a work-life balance when it comes to health and the health of physicians. There are just many physicians as vascular surgeon not far from here who recently passed at a very young age. Uh, and, you know, I know he worked very hard and I'm, I'm sure that, I don't know if there could have been anything to be done to prolong 
his life, but who knows? Uh, I'm sure, like me and many others, we just don't address in a timely fashion some of the medical issues we should be addressing as we get older, or at any age for that matter. So that, that just brings up those, that, that sort of hovering question of how do you, how do you make that happen? You, you call it health day, but there's such a demand on um, your schedules and even pulling back in, in the training, but, but it, it just never gets less busy. You've been you know, doing this 25 years, you went through your training. Did it get less busy for you? when you got out of training and now you've been practicing? Well, training in that regard is easy because you're always given a group of things to get done in a certain period of time. You're not in control of your own life. In other words, you're, you're given things to do that are more than any human can do. And that's your mission. And so you do it. When you're, once you finish your training, Yes, you have many of those things, but then you have a lot of discretionary time in the sense that you could elect not to do an extra case, or you could elect not to give that talk, or maybe not write that chapter, or do that article. I mean, yes, there are pressures to do that, but it's it's not the same. It's not the same. And you have to be an adult and make the right decisions. And... Uh, I'll be the first to say that we don't always act like adults and make the right decisions. So, you know, I think that's that's the difference. So it's different than training. In training, it's easy. You're giving your marching orders. It's like being in the service. You're a private. You're giving your marching orders, and that's what you do. And if you don't do it, uh, believe me, you'll be in the doghouse and in uh, some kind of confinement <laughs> that you won't like. They, they have a way of getting the behavior they want, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, I, I uh, mentioned this in the beginning. Uh, when, when people go through and, and um, we've seen a, a few people uh, work an entire career and then think about pursuing other interests, I, I thought it was interesting um, that, that you started to explore. And this was the one I was mentioning earlier that you were talking about pursuing comedy maybe at some point. I find this fascinating from uh, a couple of different levels. One, because you obviously have a great bio and history and, and you, you do great at what you do, but you know, at what point do you start to think about exploring other things? This career to be a physician demands so much. At what point do you get the choice to start pursuing other interests? Maybe they're, they're not to, to, to earn income, but just for enjoyment and, and really get to explore those. And this is a, this is a great one because uh, it allows you to have and, and access a completely different side of your brain than the one that has to be super critical and serious with the patients and, and you're dealing in a very serious atmosphere versus obviously, hopefully you're not super serious as a comedian. Otherwise, I don't think you'll do it very long. Well, I, I do comedy as a surgeon. So you're saying that uh, I can't do surgery as a comic? <laughs> Well, I, I guess you could go in and just say, you know, whatever jokes you want. I'm not sure that the patients will stay in the room. Yeah, I think, uh, you're, they might. <laughs> I think you're right. I do think comedy, I think um, laughter and, and comedy is an important part of a uh, healthy state of being. I use it in my interaction with patients uh, and 
other professional staff every day, all the time. Uh, not to the point of silliness, but to the point, you know, I, I think it's just good for you to to smile and laugh. You know, anyone who, who knows me knows that when I give a presentation, at some point in that presentation, there may be something comical that will appear, something amusing, let's say, uh, usually, not always. But I do enjoy that. And um, I've often thought about giving it a go if I ever stop doing what I'm doing, which I don't know if I will, but to get up on a stage and try to actually make people laugh. That, uh, that's a daunting task. It takes a whole lot of guts, too. Well, I bet it's um, a little different than what you currently do. I would not want to get on your stage. That would be uh, not funny <laughs> for me. <laughs> I think it's uh, great that you bring that into your work. I think, shoot, you know, there's so much... Uh, weight in doing what you do and, and dealing with patients that I'm sure that the patients appreciate somebody that comes in and, and has uh, a great attitude or the people that work with you and is even interested in, in making people laugh, right? The fact that you lead with that is, is great. Uh, I want you to uh, send us an invitation when you finally decide that you want to go do your uh, uh, open mic night. Well, as I think I told you, I I did it once on a on a cruise at the urging of my good friend and my family for a talent show. Uh, and they convinced me that because this talent show was in the middle of the day, that, you know, no one would possibly be on a cruise ship going to a talent show when it's 90 degrees out rather than being at the pool. And so I let myself think that, okay, well, I could, get up and do this in front of 20, 30 people. And uh, only to find out that when I walked into this massive room, it looked like Radio City Musical, and there were over a 1,000 people in this room awaiting to see the talent show. And you did not say that. There's over a 1,000 people in the room? Yes. Yes. It was uh, quite intimidating. When I first walked in, I said, I looked at my friend, I said, I am not doing this. I am not. He said, it's too late. You're on the list. You can't not do it. You have to do it. And? And, and uh, I wrote my own material the day before, and it was all about the cruise so that everyone could appreciate it, and uh, gave a kind of comedy act presentation and uh, got a standing ovation. The MC looked at me and he said, it's a talent show. You don't get to do an encore. <laughs> Thank God. I've got no more material. <laughs> I'm out. And the next day, the boat had pulled back into shore. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Z, we wanted to it's gonna wrap up. Thank you so much for, for the time as, as we go through it. And, and the name of our podcast is The Patient Physician. And it means different things to, to different physicians throughout your career. Uh, just saying the, the phrase, The Patient Physician, what would that mean to you? Well, it would mean two things for me. The first thing I think of when you say that is the patient and the physician and the relationship between the two. And then the second thing I thought of is very much what we talked about earlier, and that's the physician as a patient and always remembering what that's like. And I think sometimes we forget. I will tell you that as you get older and you become a patient more frequently, 
it uh, really puts a, a shock of reality in you and it makes you more cognizant of what your patients are going through. Uh, you know, sometimes you have to be a little bit hard to be a physician and in particular a surgeon and in very particular a vascular surgeon because we see so much illness and at times death and um, you can become numb to it and you can't do that. You just can't do that. You got to keep bringing yourself back and saying, you know, this isn't a so-called case. This is a patient. When you always bear that in mind, you'll be a better doctor. Thanks so much for your time. It's good to catch up with you, and I uh, look forward to seeing you on stage. <laughs> I'm going to give you a discount. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Basic. We really appreciate your time, and we look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you, and I enjoyed it. This conversation was brought to you by Physicians Resource Services, a firm supporting medical professionals to improve their financial situation and pursue their personal and professional goals. The Patient Physician is produced in Austin, Texas. Editing and sound design are in the hands of the PodConnects Podcast Network. Please email questions or show ideas to info at physiciansrs.com.